Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm trying to think. Is that number still right? Ninety-nine. Uh, uh, yeah, it's yeah. close enough. All right, so 40 years. It's, uh, hand grenades. Now, I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with a way to check it out. All right, and on today's episode, we're going to head to the pub and do our usual sort of walk through the beer business. We're also actually, we got to make a stop at the Correctional Department of Corrections because the corrections are flowing. And then in the library, we're going to talk about, well, some of the stuff that we've been reading and, you know, what you should probably put on your Christmas shopping list. Remember, folks. It's still Christmas season, and you can still buy things via Amazon and give us back some money. That's then right. We'll go into the brewery. We'll talk a little bit about some things I've been experiencing in the brewery, and we're also going to talk about a new product that's coming soon to home brewers. And then in the lounge, we're going to go talk to my good friend Kevin Osborne of Celador Ales about, well, just really what it means to be a sour beer brewery without a brewery. <laughs> and then we're going to give you some questions, maybe give you some answers. We'll give you a quick tip something other, and we'll get you on the way. But before we do all that, we want you to sit back and listen to a few messages from the people who support this show. So kick back, take it easy, and we'll be right back after this. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now, Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iodophor. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Hey, thanks for sticking around. Before we get into the rest of the show, we have a few announcements to start with. Drew, take it. So as you know, we have two shows on this uh, lovely little podcast feed of ours. And last week we had a new episode of The Brew Files, episode 24, The Forgotten Giant of Albany, where I actually got to sit down with Craig Gravina of the Albany Ale Project to talk about a, well, kind of an old stock ale style with Dutch influence that made it, well, made it to Hawaii in a day when... That the idea of two-day shipping just wasn't a thing. 
So I I had a lot of fun. I thought it was a great episode to dig into a, a, a new old style. Yeah, I thought it was really fascinating, man. It was something I knew absolutely nothing about. So uh, kudos to you for coming up with it. Hey, what can I say? I like uh, I like weird beer. <laughs> no, really? All right, so uh, we got some codes. Yeah, really. Uh, we have some ways that you can save money and help people out. First of all, if you are in the market for a Zymatic brewing appliance from Pico Brew, you can save 300 bucks right now by going to their website and ordering one and entering the code PICODENNY, P-I-C-O-D-E-N-N-Y. That offer is good through the end of the year, up until the first of next year. So remember, get yourself a Zymatic. We love ours and save 300 bucks with the code PICODENNY. Also, we have a new affiliate sponsor, BruceWag.com. If you go to BruceWag.com and enter the code EXPERIMENTAL when you check out, you not only save 7.5% on your purchases, but they'll donate 7.5% more to our charity, which is just way cool. We want to thank Brian Welch there for uh, volunteering to do that and helping out the charity. Yeah, I think I'm going to get that Hops and uh, hops and Crossbones homebrewing shirt. I know, man. He has some really cool stuff there, I have to admit. Get some beer candy, get some beer soap, get some bottle openers. Guess what? These are perfect homebrew, homebrew holiday gifts. That's right, man. Uh, so go do your Christmas shopping at BruceWag.com. Save 7.5% and get some money donated to our charity, which we'll tell you about in just a minute, right after Drew puts out this call. That's right. It's time for Brew Year's resolutions. Don't make those same stupid resolutions that you always do. I'm going to knock off those 10 pounds. I'm going to sleep better. I'm going to be nicer to my children. No. Make a resolution that you can actually keep. Let's hear what you want to do in the brewery. So just uh, send us an email at podcast at experimentalbrew.com or even better, leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1-ALE and tell us what your brew year's resolution is for 2018. Coming up in January, we'll have an episode where we're going to gather all those together, talk about everybody's brew year's resolutions and just, well, how well or not so well Denny and I did at our own. Oh man, you don't even want to know. Yeah, I already know. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, I guess that kind of says it all, huh? Yeah. And don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year, and one of the last times we're going to be able to get to say that, is... It is Axel's Angels and the Desi Strong Foundation which is helping fund the care and treatment of pediatric cancer. So, you know, it's a cause everybody can get behind. We just have a few weeks to go in this fundraiser. So if you haven't already donated to help out uh, Axel's Angels and the Desi Strong Foundation, get it done before it's too late. Because after the first of the year, we're going to be supporting a new charity, and we'd like to hear uh, if you have ideas for what that can be. So if you have some ideas for a charity that uh, we can support and you guys can all support, shoot us an email at podcast at experimentalbrew.com and give us your idea. Go All right, and of course now, because we are only human, it is time for us to go to the Correctional Department of Corrections, and this one comes from uh, Mark Bowman, who uh, wrote in about 
well, a couple episodes, we answered a question about somebody who had a idea for shock top uh, pretzel wheat beer and says, yo, guys, first, loving the show. Brute beer is going to happen in my life. Brute beer should happen in everybody's life. Yeah, really. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go listen to the Brute File show, calling out the Brute Squad. It's a lot of fun. So Mark says, I wanted to ask slash point out one item on the last show. Dude wants to make a pretzel beer. Shock Top is his inspiration? Really? Hey, inspiration is wherever you can find it. That's right. We're not making uh, fun of anybody's tastes here. Right. Well, I make fun of your taste, but that's because I know you. Yeah. Uh, He continues, you said he should avoid caramel malt, but recommended Caravienne. Pretty sure Caravienne is a crystal slash caramel malt, too. Just saying. Mark? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely right. It is a it is a caramel malt. It's a C twenty. Uh, I tend to not think of it as so much of a caramel malt, and I tend to use a lot of it, which goes against my sort of mantra of caramel malt is bad. But I kind of like <laughs> the C twenties, uh, those C eight C twenty type Belgian crystals much more than I like a lot of like what I think people tend to use a lot of in the brewing world, which is your C fifties, your C sixties, your C eighties, your C one twenties. Uh, those sort of very British American sort of uh, caramels. So yeah, when uh, I know when I shortcut and say don't use caramels, I usually leave out the, the Belgian ones that I like because I like them. <laughs> yeah, right. So that way you can kind of get around your own rule. And uh, let me just quickly point out: caramel malt is not bad. Using it incorrectly is bad. This is true. So yeah, don't. Uh, so to amend the previous topic, don't go on the heavy caramels. But the lighter caramels, I think, actually add some really interesting characters to beers. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that the darker ones can too. You just have to use them in proportion and know what you're doing and uh, balance them out. Ooh, I said the B word. Sorry about that. Yeah, and knowing that balance is a thing that is required pretty much rules out most of us. So, <laughs> yeah, really. Moving on, I okay. think it's time for a beer. Yep. We're going to take a quick break here before we head over to the pub, and we want you to help us welcome our newest sponsor of Experimental Brewing, YCH Hops. We're really looking forward to working with these guys. They have some great products. They are great people. And so uh, let's hear a little word from them and what they got, and we'll meet you over at the pub afterwards. YCH Hops is a grower-owned global hop company located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms with the world's finest brewers. YCH Hops is thrilled about the release of their newest product, Cryo Hops, to both commercial and home brewers, providing intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Visit YCHHops.com to find a homebrew retail store near you. We have made our way over to the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, somewhere in this galaxy, because, you know, we didn't want to get too parochial here. 
And we are having a couple beers. And uh, I'll start off today because I am drinking one of my favorite beers in the world. For some reason, I just feel like it's the time to revisit old favorites. So I'm having a Rochefort 8. I just love this beer, man. This is uh, one of my ideals of a perfect beer. Definitely in my top five. The uh, notes of chocolate and banana and uh, the phenols coming through. Uh, just a, a perfect blend for a winter sipping beer, which is exactly what I'm doing with it. Well, that's nice. Uh, and I still have a couple of those uh, Rochefort tins I found on sale, 50% off at my grocery oh, store. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, hanging I'm out. I'm trying to uh, keep it a little bit less alcohol, so only an eight for me. <laughs> only what, an eight. Yeah. What are you having today? Well, I'm having a... I was, you know, people know I'm on a hunt to finish off all the L.A. County breweries as my wife sends me around on furniture hunting trips. Sometimes they send me down into the deepest, darkest corners of Orange County. And while I was in Orange County, I stopped at a pair of breweries, but one of them run by a friend of mine uh, that is called Barley Forge Brewing Company. And I brought back home some of their Harry Tuttle Fooder Aged Saison. And of course, gotta love any place that can make a reference to Brazil. So this is just, it's a, a lovely beer. It comes in around uh, 6%, not very hoppy, and it falls into line with what I actually really like when I see breweries pitting uh, Britannomyces into a Saison, where the beer is a Saison with Britannomyces characters and not a Brett beer with possibly some Saison characters to it as well. So it really kind of comes out and lays in that right sort of blend. Yeah, man, that seems like the right way to do it to me. That's you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna put Brett in a saison, it should be secondary to the saison. Yeah, and so many places that I have it, that that's not the case. But uh, the Harry Tuttle, the Fooder Age saison, definitely a strong Brett presence to it, but still plays second fiddle. So this is good. Do more you know, of that, people. While we're talking saison here, um, I. I I got into a discussion the other day uh, on Facebook about saisons with people, hmm. and uh, a guy was talking about how he likes to ferment really warm because he really likes the bubblegum and banana character in his saison. And sure, you know there. I think that I think that there are too many people who don't really understand what a saison is. Yeah, I mean you and me both, but you know I go on this rant all the time, so. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, to me, there are some people who really like those bubblegum tones, and in which case, great, more yeah, power to you. You know, may Gambrinus bless your beer. I don't. Uh, I tend to prefer the more phenolic-driven uh, styles uh, for Saison, which is the reason why I have my whole stupid thing about how I ferment my Saisons at, you know, starting in the 60s and then letting it come up. Right. I, I always find that if you, if you try and run your Saisons like a lot of people do with the pedal down to the metal, you know, straight from the beginning. I not only do you pick up a lot of banana, but you also tend to pick up a lot of fusels, and I just don't like that. Yeah, and the guy that I was having this discussion with uh, preferred to make a saison using Chimay yeast, starting fermentation at seventy-eight. It's, it's not like, a saison. <laughs> I, I tried to tell him that, but eventually it was kind of like you know, if you like your beer, you should keep making it that way. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's a fine and fair point, but. On this particular ground, I will say, great beer, not a saison. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, moving on from our opinions, we have... Uh, <laughs> Wait, hold on, moving on from our opinions, back into more of our opinions. 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. But uh, we're going to talk about our opinion, about Camera's opinion. Uh, you remember that uh, the Brewers Association has kind of laid down the law about uh, objectionable beer labels and names for the Great American Beer Fest and uh, not accepting beers with them and uh, especially not giving awards to beers with them or allowing breweries uh, who have what they consider to be offensive names to use any kind of uh, awards in their advertising. Well, and it, to, to be very clear, because I want to make sure that, that we get this right, what the Brewers Association has put out there is if you have a beer that is named with an offensive name as determined by a panel mm -hmm. at the competitions, you are allowed to win, you're allowed to enter, but you are not allowed to have, your beer name will not be announced, and your beer name will not be published in the materials, and that beer name will not allowed to be able to use the Brewers Association IP to show off, say, a World Beer Cup medal or a GABF medal. Now, that's a very, very small step. And yeah. But so, we think it's it's an important step. Yeah, absolutely. So now at last week's uh, Brewers Congress in London, the uh, headline uh, uh, one of the speakers there was a brewer, and I'm I'm probably going to say this wrong. Uh, Yega uh, Wise, uh, she's a female brewer for Wildcard, uh, the head brewer there, and she basically came out swinging at sexist beer branding because the birds have it too. And she actually sort of built on what the Brewers Association has put out there, again, with this sort of marketing language type thing. And she wants to see both Camera and SEBA, which is the Society of Independent Brewers, which I believe, and our listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, is effectively like the British equivalent of the Brewers Association for craft brewers. Uh, basically, she wants them to pick that the same thing up to start doing that. Uh, she wants them to also gather up some more data on women and beer. But then the other part is, this is actually where she actually wants to take it a little bit further, I thought, which is she actually wants there to be a ban on any of those beers entering the competitions at all. So she wants Siba and Cameron to not even allow them into the competition, which is a, a little bit of a step further than what the Brewers Association is doing, which is the reason why I wanted to make sure that was very clear when we started talking about it. Right. So... And she's also talking about the fact that, you know, she's one of four head brewers in London who's a woman, and London has 110 breweries. So this is part of why this is a passionate thing for her. Now, yeah, and Cameron's response was kind of like surprisingly pleasing, huh? Yeah, so, and Cameron responded basically the next day, and the Abigail Newton, who is sort of the members communication director for the national executive for Camera, And again, if you don't know, Camera is the campaign for real ale. They're the sort of people who uh, started up in the 70s to sort of save real ale and cask beer. They have a reputation for being very stodgy. So this response from them was actually kind of really good where she basically says, uh, hey, you know, look, these are great questions and absolutely uh, worthy of further debate, including uh, questions here of why do some producers alienate the vast majority of their potential customers with material likely to only appeal to a tiny and shrinking percentage when they can help beer have a much wider appeal in both terms of age and gender. So, she pointed out they already have a charter and a code, but they are actually acting to work on further things, and that they are trialing some new policies at some of their different festivals and competitions. So, kind of uh, good on you. Yeah, really. That uh, That's really cool. It seems reasonable to me, and uh, I think they're going about it the right way. 
And kind of in the same vein is a story about uh, a brewery called The Garage Project in New Zealand who discontinued a beer named Death From Above after they received a, a rather impassioned letter from uh, from someone, huh? The uh, Garage Project is a Wellington-based brewery, and Death From Above is actually one of their sort of iconic beers and sold all around the world. But Pete Gillespie, who's the brewer, said that he got a letter from an Australian woman of Vietnamese descent, and it says here, she wrote a very long and detailed letter to us explaining how upset she was and how the imagery and name had triggered things in her. Now, before you go and go, well, you're kind of being sensitive, you have to look at the label. The label is not just the words death from above, but it's a hop cone that they've sort of moved out into sort of like the airborne screaming eagle type of logo. A, for, a weaponized hop cone. Yeah, a weaponized hop cone with a, a row of Hueys flying in the, from the background. Yeah, you know, in, into kind of a sort of a slash, uh, part hop field, part jungle scene. So it's very, very clear that it's making a, a reference to Apocalypse Now. And so uh, Gillespie had said that that was originally what he wanted to call it. Might have run into an issue with Tin Barrel. But, but he, I, th- I thought what was great was his response was, they basically shut down the, the, the production of the beer. No, uh, no more Death From Above. Might come back, but uh, renamed. But for now, it's offline. And what he said was, it really was just a pop culture reference, but I reflected deeply on it. And the last thing I want to do is upset people. Brewing is meant to be fun, but we don't do it in a vacuum. We exist as a business in a broader community. That Man, that is such an intelligent and thoughtful response. Because, number one, not only do you have to consider the fact that... Uh, there are people out there who can be offended or hurt by this and who wants to do that. But even more important, it's bad for your business. Why do you want to alienate anyone who could possibly be putting money in your pocket? Yep. And again, I mean, what I, what I appreciated about it, whether or not you actually think that, that this was the right move to make, what I appreciated about it was the fact that it was a relatively uh, mature and kind of thought out response, you know, without the, the sort of knee-jerk, hey, I didn't mean, uh, I wasn't trying to hurt you, so what are you doing? Type yeah, of business right. that I suspect even I would get up to when this would first come in. Right. And that's one of the many reasons that I'm looking forward to going to New Zealand in March uh, for the New Zealand Homebrew Conference. They just seem like such nice and reasonable people. And there you go. Now you're going to have to talk to uh, the folks at Garage Project and enjoy some of their beer. Uh, you know what? I think that that uh, can probably happen. I would imagine. Yeah. Okay. So, hey, you know, it is the holiday season, and people are shopping, and of course the first day of shopping for the holiday season is always that mystical, magical retail holiday called Black Friday. Now, why are we talking about Black Friday on a beer podcast? Well, because for at least a few years now, Black Friday has also become the day when a lot of beer collectors suddenly decide to ignore that Anheuser-Busch owns Goose Island and go out and raid their local liquor stores to find, you know, 10 different variants of Bourbon County Stout. Now, I'm not a huge Bourbon County Stout fan. I, I think I first encountered probably under the wrong conditions or probably by the point in time when I'd already had a bunch of other bourbon barrel stouts. So, I mean, this was the the progenitor, one of the progenitors of the, the whole thing. But I've never seen the point in going out and buying it, particularly not trying to get up in line early to go buy this thing brewed and aged in that whiskey cask versus that whiskey cask. But it's been a big thing. Now, what I thought was interesting was this year is the first time I've really noticed that there was 
intentional counter-programming happening to the Goose Island, Bourbon County stout sale. And what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is, obviously, Goose Island is not even close to the only brewery making bourbon barrel stouts anymore. And I think you can pretty much, you know, swing a pint glass and hit a brewery making a bourbon barrel stout. There are now more breweries releasing their bourbon barrel stouts on Black Friday. Because, hey, if you want to support an independent brewery, you could go buy their product. And what really caught my eye was this is also the first year that I've heard of liquor stores, like good liquor stores, you know, they're dedicated to, you know, having a good beer selection, actually intentionally turning down their potential allotment of Bourbon County Stout in favor of having an all independent bourbon barrel stout sales day. And so a good example of that is a local a local beer shop near me called the Green Jug did exactly that. They kicked uh, Bourbon County Stout out of the shop and sold nothing but craft beer versions of bourbon barrel stouts. That is very cool, man. And you know, in a, in a way, it's kind of a natural evolution. Uh, it seems like when Bourbon County first showed up, there weren't a lot of bourbon barrel stouts around, and now there are. So there's lots of other choices. So there's no reason not to go for an independent version. Exactly. So I think that's interesting. I'm wondering if that's going to continue, and I wonder if Black Friday, at least in the beer world, is just going to become Bourbon Barrel Stout Day. <laughs> yeah, you know, we'll see, huh? Uh, we'll comment again next year, huh? Well, assuming we remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's always that. All right, and last story. Finally, we're going to uh, follow up on a story about uh, the Speakeasy Brewing in uh, San Francisco, which closed down recently. But they're reopening, and they're going to be brewing again, but they're going to be focusing on their tap room and serving their beer there. Well, it's a little bit more involved than that. So, Speakeasy ran into uh, money issues, right? This happens. Mm -hmm. And particularly when you overexpand and and aren't pushing enough beer out the door. Speakeasy was one of those original lineups of craft breweries from the mid-90s, and they kind of had that... Well, I mean, it really felt like they had that same sort of philosophy. You know, hey, here's our core four and an occasional seasonal specialty. And they hadn't really glommed on to how the beer markets changed. So they're kind of viewed a little bit stodgy and the beer quality was always kind of viewed as, eh, right? People weren't excited about the brand anymore. So they ran into capitalization issues. The brewery actually shut down and they had a skeleton crew there still brewing. And by skeleton crew, I mean like a couple of dudes. They got, they got rescued by a guy named Seth Bunter, who had been part of a beverage distributorship in the past. He actually formed up a new brewing company to sort of put it into. And they actually just finished redecorating the taproom. They did a minor remodel on it, and they're bringing it back. And the taproom, just like what we were talking about last episode with the Widmere taproom, you know, where they kind of decided the restaurant model doesn't work for us anymore, we're instead going to focus on our experimental and taproom experience. It's exactly what Speakeasy is doing as well. They'll still have their core beers, but now they're going to have a lot of taproom-only brews. And the first one is Holdout Stout, which was a an oatmeal stout that was brewed by Clay Jordan, their uh, director of brewing operations, and some of that skeleton crew during the whole shutdown, like while they were in receivership. And they basically did it completely off the books, no official approval for it, and with the ingredients that they had lying around in the brewery at the time of the receivership. <laughs> <laughs> so that will be the first beer that's coming back online. And so I think by the time that we're talking about this, I think they're targeting uh, the taproom to be open on December 15th. 
So that will be about a week after this episode airs. Right. So if you're in San Francisco and you were a speakeasy fan before, you can be again. And who knows, maybe they'll be better than they were. There you go. All right. I think it's time for us to get on and do some other work. Yep, I guess it probably is. So we're going to finish up our beers and we're going to head over to the library and talk about some of the books we've been reading, just in case you need more ideas for Christmas presents for your favorite home brewer. Stick around, we're going to be right back. Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaka is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chalaka is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaka you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chalaka wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. here in the library surrounded by shelves full of books some of which we've actually even read which ones have you been up to lately drew well so i've got a list of six books that i think pretty much all come out in this year or relatively recently that i think will be at home in any homebrewer's library and i've been having great fun reading them talked about a couple of them in the past so uh, first one i that i'm almost done with right now is jeff allworth's the secret of master brewers where Jeff went around and interviewed a bunch of different master brewers from around the world and put down basically breakdowns of styles and their tips on how to make that thing. So including like, for instance, getting Olivier from DuPont, as we talked about on the podcast with Jeff a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Another book that we also talked about uh, earlier this year, Patrick McGovern's uh, Ancient Brews, where he breaks down a whole bunch of the archaeological brews that he's done with uh, Dogfish Head and how they decided to formulate, well, first, how they actually figured out what the formula of the beer should be, and then how they decided to for- how to formulate a modern version of that beer. So it's a lot of fun, plus good stories about you know how chemistry can actually help you uh, relearn your history. Cool. Uh, and then uh, another one that I never actually knew was out on the market, and I unfortunately, it's not the world's cheapest book, but uh, Horace Dornbush, who has written a lot of things about beer has a beer, a beer book that was available via the NBA and a couple of other sources. We'll include a link for the beer styles from around the world. And just like what Jeff has done with the master secrets uh, idea or the secret of master brewers horse has gone down and broken down all the different styles that he's able to find in the world and give his take on, you know, what the style is and how to brew various, uh, iterations of it, including some of them more that, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, there's multiple versions of IPA. So here's a couple different IPA recipes, kind of very nice and handy uh, reference to have on hand. A couple of other ones uh, that are out there, Jennifer Talley from Brewers Publication and Squatters Brew Pub. And uh, I forget where she's running around now, but she's been running around for uh, years in the brewing industry. She wrote uh, session beers, which as you know, Denny and I are big fans of the idea of session beers. That's right. 
And again, breaking down some styles that fall into the session beer category, just what is a session beer, and then going and interviewing a bunch of brewers talking about their favorite versions of session beers that they make. So if you have a hankering for session beers, or hey, maybe you have a hankering to lose those last 10 pounds but still drink beer in the new year. Oh, yeah. This is not a bad pickup. Then uh, Dave Carpenter, who we know as the editor at Zymergy that we work with, who is now actually living in Germany right now, he just released a book all about lager beer, oddly enough, called Lager. <laughs> Makes it nice and easy, doesn't it? Yeah, and in, in there, he basically breaks down all the different lager styles that he can think of. Uh, has a for- foreword in there by uh, Peter Buchart, formerly of New Belgium. And Dave, of course, is a good friend of ours, but the book was also put together by our publishers for Experimental Brewing and Homebrew All-Stars. So not only is it filled with a lot of really good content, it's also pretty to look at. Yeah, really, man. Those guys uh, make some nice books. And I guess we might as well mention that uh, if you are still looking for other ideas for books for your favorite homebrewer, our books, uh, Experimental Homebrewing and Homebrew All-Stars, are available through our website, experimentalbrew.com. Just go there, click on the link that says buy our books. Yes, we're not subtle or proud. And, uh, you know, you can pick up uh, copies of our books for your favorite homebrewer. And you know what? We can even sign them for you. So don't forget about that. That does happen. And I have one last book to leave you guys with before, before we go to Denny's recommendations. And that is... Friend of the podcast, Peter Simons from Australia, who we interviewed earlier this year in one of the first Brew Files episodes about his book, uh, Brewing Austra- Bronze Brews, about Australian beers, has just released a brand new tome called Six O'Clock Brews, uh, which is a further exploration of Australian beers from a different era and uh, different breweries that he's gotten access to, you know, moldy old archives. So you can go on and you can buy that online and that will be shipped to you as well. So I'm in the middle of reading that one. And of course, it's always interesting to learn about different brew cultures and different brew histories because I'm a nerd. So (laughs) by all means, go pick that up. And speaking of Australia, we're going to be there for the Australian Homebrew Conference in October of 2018, huh? Yeah, it's going to be fun. That's going to be really fun. I'm really looking forward to that. So now those are my six recommendations uh, in addition to our books. Now, Denny, what have you been reading? Not much, actually. Uh, I just I just don't seem to have time to read a lot of stuff anymore because I'm too busy doing to uh, actually sit down and read. But uh, I do have a book on the way I'm looking forward to. It's Chris Colby's latest book, Methods of Modern Homebrewing. Looks like it's going to be pretty interesting, and I'm, I'm looking forward to reading what Chris has to say. Looks like he covers a lot of... Uh, different methods and processes and uh, styles of beer with recommendations on how to brew them. So uh, that's one that I am looking forward to reading soon. Yeah. And I'm, uh, I should be getting a copy of that as well, because after all, I need more things to read. <laughs> yeah, I know, man. You know, I, I used to read a lot more, but uh, these days I, I'm longing for the time to read half as much as I used to. There you go. All right. Well, and hey, listeners, do you have other books that we've uh, not talked about? Other suggestions that, you know, our, our fellow listeners would want to read? Uh, let us know. Send us a line. Podcast at experimentalbrew.com. We'll talk about those, too. That's right. Or again, you can always call us at 626-765-1-ALE and uh, give us your ideas there. So Denny, Denny can't read, but Denny can brew. So why don't we go, <laughs> why don't we go brew? That's a good idea. 
We're going to uh, head on over to the brewery where we're going to be talking about some of Drew's problems, at least the brewery-related ones. And uh, we're going to be talking about a new product that's coming on the market. So stick around. We're going to be back after these messages. Y Yeast has been producing premium liquid yeast for over 30 years and continues to provide homebrewers with the same quality, purity, and reliability as the professionals. Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham collaborated with Yeast to bring you this quarter's private collection. As the weather starts to cool, some of the world's greatest beer festivals are getting ready to celebrate. Lagers can be the ideal beer for any season, but there's no better time than autumn to brew some of the classics. With their lower fermentation temperatures and accentuated maltiness, our 2002 PC Gambrinus Lager, 2487 PC Hellebach, and 2575 PC Kolsch II will lend ideal variety and complexity through the months to come. Get them October through December 2017. The stainless steel is gleaming. The burners are burning. And Drew has problems. Tell us about it, Mr. Beecham. Yeah, we don't have enough time to enumerate all my problems. <laughs> okay, uh, tell us so, about the one you're thinking of. Right. So I just brewed this last weekend the Laurel Canyon Saison that I'd threatened to brew uh, in the last episode. And I had a great time doing it. But I have a 26-gallon Fermentec kettle, right? So this thing's massive. I can sit in it. I could take a bath in the damn thing if I wanted to. I, I don't, don't, don't make me think about that. Yeah, I won't. Uh, no Drew Brew, literally. <laughs> but one, one problem I've had, and I can't figure out why, comes pre-drilled, right? There's a, there's a slot there. There's a hole there. And I've, I've put in a copper pickup tube that runs off to a sort of a big mesh loop that I have in the bottom of the kettle to act as a trube and, and hop filter. Works like a charm, except for I'm noticing that I'm getting increased loss in my kettle in terms of what I actually leave behind. I went and I measured it uh, this last weekend just to see. And you know how much beer I left behind in that kettle? I left two gallons. Now, wow. anybody who's anybody who's ever looked at that volume calculator spreadsheet I put out there knows you might you, you might think, "Geez, two gallons—that's a lot of a lot of beer." And it is a lot of beer. But if you look at the volume calculator that I use, you also realize that twenty-six gallon pot is really really broad. So two gallons is like about an inch worth of wort. Ah, so, so with with the braid you have in there, you're probably losing your siphon. That's kind of what I'm thinking. So I need to sit down and, uh, and break out a new way of doing this thing because I love having that braid in there. Why? Because the word that well, because the word I get out of the the kettle is amazingly clear of true in terms of what I have to do. Now I know there's a lot of a lot of debate and a lot of evidence that points to trying to drive out all your true is not a, necessarily an important step of brewing. But yeah, I mean, still, if I can take some reasonable steps without too much fuss then I'm, I'm fine with that. So yeah, I mean, the, the flow that I get, I, I've never been able to clog it with hops. 
and the work comes out relatively clear. I, I, I like having it in there. So now I got to figure out, is there something that I'm doing that's wrong? Is there something that I need to do in order to keep the siphon? Am I losing the siphon because of one of the elbow breaks? So here's what I'm going to tell you is one of my Brewer's resolutions as a, as a sneak preview is I'm going to figure out this damn thing and get every last ounce of wort I can out of that kettle. You know what now, my advice would be? Pray tell. Sim- Remove the braid. Simplify. Yes, exactly. Simplify, man. Um, I used to go through stuff like that, and uh, now I just have a little uh, copper pickup tube that comes off my valve, mm-hmm. runs out an inch or two, then curves back around and picks up from the side of the kettle. Uh, most of the tube and stuff goes right through that tube, right through my pump and into the fermenter, and it doesn't matter at all. As a matter of fact, there have been two studies I know of, one that uh, Marshall did at Brewlosophy, and another one many years ago, before Marshall was probably even a gleam in his mother's eye, done by uh, Joachim Rood on the Brews and Views discussion forum. And that one, unfortunately, is not accessible anymore. They changed their software and lost their archives. But both of them, what it basically came down to was that beer fermented with the trube in it was clearer than beer without it, and tasters preferred the flavor of the beer fermented on the trube. So just just something to think about there before you start driving yourself too crazy. Well, I guess that's true. Uh, it's too late for crazy. That. Yeah, right. There, there's no saving me from that. But uh, I, do, I do want to figure this out because I do like having that braid in there, uh, mostly for runoff reasons. So I got to I got to figure out what's going on. It, it's going to make me nuts. And the other thing is, of course, now that I'm doing an immersion chiller, I would like to keep more stuff yeah. out of my pump. So, but as you said, that's not necessarily always a problem. <laughs> I know it's not a problem for you. Yeah. I'm, oh no. This is my weirdness. All right. It's the same thing as like it's the same thing as like when I go and I don't know. I mean, I every time I ever do a brew session at home, the very first thing I do before I actually start brewing is I light off a couple. Uh, sticks of uh, Buddhist prayer incense and put those next to the brewery. It does absolutely nothing for the beer, but it's part of the routine and God, and, and see, it, man, it's going to keep that's happening. Something, I, I wouldn't even do that. I mean, geez, uh, okay, whatever I, you live in Los Angeles. I guess that, that uh, explains it. <laughs> exactly. Okay. We're crazy here. All right, and now, of course, we have to talk about a new product that's coming on, and it's going to be one of Denny's favorite products yeah, you know, to ever I, hit the it market, I think. It probably won't be anything that I'll end up using, but I'm really happy for all the people who will find it useful that it's there. Yep. So, Lalamond, uh, earlier this month, they announced that they now have a new dried strain of yeast. Lalamond, of course, makes you know, dried yeast strains, and they make some really good ones. They have a new one that they're bringing out into the market. Their New England East Coast Ale Yeast. How's that make you feel, Denny? You know, like I said, uh, nothing that I'm probably going to be interested in, but I'm happy for all the people who are interested in it. Yeah, and so just from the tasting notes of it, it gives off the fruity tones, the the peach and stone fruit type tones to it. So it doesn't seem like it's a 1318 London Ale type uh, strain. It seems like it's much more along the lines of, like, say, the Conan strains uh, that people are using with the New England beers. And currently... It's only available in 500 gram packs in this very first run that they did. Now, a 500 gram pack, if you think about it, is enough for, what is that, 500 liters of wort. So that's a lot more than you or I could ever uh, possibly deal with. 
So I did reach out and ask our sponsors over at Brewcraft whether or not it was going to be available in 11-gram uh, pouches. And they said, yes, it is coming. It is coming soon. But the first batch was uh, all dedicated to 500-gram packs. This is actually being used at some professional breweries. Cloudwater, which is pretty infamous for their hazy IPAs, apparently has used it uh, for some of their uh, products as well. So I don't know. I'm kind of happy to see it happening. This also says to me, much to the chagrin of most of the haze haters out there, that uh, haziness might be here to stay for a little while. Yeah, well, uh, we'll see, huh? We will. But we will keep you up to date. Uh, As I said, the folks at Brewcraft USA have told me that it is coming in 11 grams. So we'll be able to use it here at the homebrew level. If you can get your hands on a 500 gram sack, there's absolutely nothing that stops you from, say splitting it up and using it or putting together a master brew day session. I will say once you open those pouches though, you got to use them pretty quick. I think Lalaman recommends it within four days. So if you are going to buy a 500 gram sack and split it up, make sure everybody's ready to go. Yeah. Well, and yeah, it's a great way to uh, share with uh, your club or a bunch of other people. Uh, many years ago when the dry lager yeast S189 first hit the market, it was only available in 500-gram bricks also, and uh, there were people I knew who were buying those and splitting them up and vacuum-sealing the yeast and sending it out, and with some care, it works really well, so something to think about. Indeed. All right, I think it's time to go lounge. Yep, we're going to head over to the lounge and check out an interview that Drew did with Kevin Osborne from Celador Ales, a really interesting uh, brewery uh, that isn't a brewery in the Los Angeles area. Stick around, we're going to be right back. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their 8th generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. All right, boys and girls, we're here. It's the lounge. Comfy chairs. Nice music. And a beer in hand. And a pipe. And a pipe. Yes, well, sometimes. There's been a brewery that opened up here in L.A., I don't know, two years ago, called Celador Ales. And they specialize in doing wild and rustic beers. And I've known uh, Kevin Osborne and Sarah, his wife, for a little while and had great fun uh, hanging out with them and trying the products. And they're very unique and just very different. I really wanted to sit down and talk with him because not only do I think he has an interesting take on, you know, sort of the wild and sour beers, but also just a a take on what it means to be a brewer without a brewery. So this whole interview takes place at the Celador Ales tasting room slash fermentorium. And the tasting room is not open to the public just yet, but it takes place in their fermentorium. uh, And Kevin is what the French would call an affineer or something along those lines. Basically, he's a finisher which is a long and noble tradition in the Belgian Lambic world. 
And they literally truck in their wart and play magic and wreak havoc right there in the brewery. And the day I was there, there were barrels everywhere, and he had just filled them up with a bunch of fresh fruits. I think it was a lot of raspberries and blackberries, and the whole place looked like a murder scene. Just from the juice everywhere. <laughs> and Kevin's one of, these, one of these really interesting guys. You guys need to sit back, and what you'll learn about is his philosophy on wild ales, his philosophy on how you flavor beers, what he does in order to keep a house culture alive, and how many house cultures is he actually running, and what he does in order to sort of get his work to and fro. Okay, so kick back, grab yourself a beer, unless you're driving, and check out uh, Drew talking to Kevin about uh, what it means to be a brewer without a brewery. All right, hey everybody, it's Drew, and I am sitting, well, I'm sitting right around the corner from the world's busiest general aviation airport and an even larger brewery, but sitting in a very, very tiny brewery. Yep. (laughs) Uh, And I am sitting here with Kevin. Kevin, why don't you introduce yourself to everybody, and where exactly are we? Hey everybody, uh, my name is Kevin Osborne. We are at Celador Ales in North Hills, California, which is right on the border of Van Nuys. And right on the other side of the border is Anheuser-Busch LA Brewery. So we're kind of in their shadow. Actually, recently they took out an ad like right across from us and said <laughs> like, brewed one mile from here. And we really wanted to get a sign that said brewed 500 feet from here just to... Just get, faces, but. just get a big uh, piece of poster board, just hang it down there. Yeah, exactly. Just on, on top of it. But yeah, we're in um, San Fernando Valley. Well, and I was going to say sour beers. This, I mean, that, that Anheuser-Busch plant is, I think, like the second largest in their whole chain. Yeah, I believe it. it's big. They make 250,000 barrels per month of beer there. Wow. So how many barrels do you make here? I think last year we did 250 barrels. So. In a year. <laughs> Like one one thousandth of a percent of what they did or something. In, in one month, yeah. So yeah. there you go. We are in a tiny, tiny operation. But So when did you first discover good beer? Oh, uh, probably I grew up in Orange County. And after high school, some of my, some of my close friends moved to San Diego. And so it was probably down there, um, pre-Uber, just kind of hopping around on a um, taxi, going to different breweries, hitting up Stone and Lost Abbey. And Mother Earth and all mm-hmm. the ones that were down there probably like nine or years ago, eight, mm-hmm. seven years ago. Um, so I'd say, yeah, going to Stone was probably a big one for me in the transition period. I didn't, I, I didn't really drink a lot of beer before that, so it wasn't like I was transitioning from bad beer to good beer. I kind of just started with good beer. Um, so Stone, and then I think I had a couple beer experiences after that that really like kind of turned me on to funkier stuff. And the first one I think was a beer from Dogfish Head. The one they did, a Tahankit. Oh, the, the Egyptian, the beer. Egyptian yeah. based one. And it just like blew my mind with all the fermentation character that they got out of it. I had it recently and it's definitely past its time. Um, but back when it was fresh, I really enjoyed the kind of like funkiness of it. Yeah. And that was, uh, that was their attempt to recreate one of the Egyptian beers or like a fundamental Egyptian beer yeah. from back in the time of the Pharaohs. So, yeah. And I believe they used like wild caught yeast that they, it wouldn't surprise found me. in Egypt. And they, they, they do, uh, they do a lot of stuff. And I know they, I mean, I know they source like the spicing and whatnot from, from Egypt really? as well. Yeah. Nice. So uh, unfortunately that was one of the, one of their historical series beers that didn't catch on. So I think they no, only yeah. made it like once or I twice. Think they did only make it once. Yeah. yeah. And so, unfortunately, that one has now been lost to history again. Yes, <laughs> for now. Well, and then, so yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about sour beer because I 
you start with the Tahiket. Yeah. Where, where else do you go? I mean, like, how do you, how do you build that profile? Um, yeah. Like I signed just like flavor experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first like actual sour beer I ever had was the apricot beer from Cascade. Oh yeah. And it was, I had no idea what a sour beer was at that point. It was a little intense for me. Couldn't, I don't think I finished the glass that I had. And that's um, an expensive glass not to finish. <laughs> it's an expensive glass. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine had gone to Oregon and I think just stumbled upon it and brought some bottles back and shared it with us and be like, cool, man, that's, that's fun. It's kind of interesting. Thanks for sharing. Um, not really for me at this point. I don't really know where it went after that. Um, but was this like one of those things where, okay, you had that, you had that taste and it was like, okay, not, not so much my thing. The next taste was like, eh. and then like the third taste, suddenly you're like, Oh wait, maybe this is my thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then like the more beers I had, I think now looking back on trying that cascade beer, I realized like that flavor profile isn't really what I like in sour beers anyway. It's kind of like really lactic and mm-hmm. no Brett character. I prefer. And, and they're very, very, very fruit. Yes. They're very fruit forward. Um, I, I believe, I don't know if you know this, that they don't use Britannomyces at all in their brewery. It's just lactic what? acid bacteria and sac. So it's a different, I mean, there's a million different ways to make sour beer. They're, they're killing it with their way. Um, well, and, and the point of that would be then that, so by Saccharomyces, of course, would give you all the, the fermentation, the lactic, uh, the lactobacillus would just give you very clean lactic acid character. Yeah. And so you'd get a very clean sour. You'll hear, I think you hear a lot of sour, sour heads talk about it, like acetic versus lactic. And yep. sometimes, you know, you throw some citric in there and, and, and yeah. really acetic and lactic are the two main ones that you get from the microbiological world. And it always seems to be a debate of like, how much of those two do you want? And are you wanting anything else in there? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like you said, they took an approach of like clean lactic acid. And I think they have like a really intense strain because they make really high alcohol beers and they still get lots of lactic acid out of it. And lactic acid bacteria is generally thought to not be very good at Mm -hmm. producing acid at high alcohol levels or high IBU levels. So, well, I mean, you think, I mean, that's part of the reason to make alcohol and exactly to keep it from that that. stuff at bay. All right. Well, so, then let's uh, let's transition from there to uh, so omitting the word balance. Yeah. <laughs> Describe your 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 recipe design, your beer design philosophy. Designing recipe, we really like to build lots of flavor components in in different ways. So, like starting with the work profile, um, we use water, use pretty hard water to try and get like a really um, thick, full mouthfeel out of out of the beers, um, and then we use a lot of add like um special uh, malts like we use spelts quite a bit we mm-hmm. use oats quite a bit um to so try you, you and reach out the for some unusual and adjunct. yeah yeah some of the usual adjuncts part part of that is i don't know how true it is but i heard chad jacobson say once that britannomyces doesn't create i think it's glycerol mm-hmm. which is part of the mouthfeel in beer more than like even sweetness mm-hmm. and so um kind of inspired by what he did with that we use lots of spelt and oats to kind of like give a really full rich mouthfeel even with a beer that's maybe zero play-doh or mm-hmm. um half a play-doh like really really dry um so that's kind of where we start also one of my philosophies is i, I like using hops and mm-hmm. lots of hops fresh hops american hops noble hops um more so i think than other sour breweries i think that people are starting to come around to this more but um i know for a long time 
there was this kind of like philosophy in Sarbier making where like zero IBUs and like zero hops was the way to do it. And to me, that's created this kind of like American sour, really lactic, mm-hmm. um, kind of thin bodied thing. Whereas I like to shoot for maybe 15 or 20, 25 even IBUs. And that to me adds complexity to the mouthfeel also. I think that like the bitterness, even like a, a relatively low level of bitterness is adds a lot to the mouthfeel in, in a sour beer. And so um, we use mostly like a small amount of early boil bittering hops and then sometimes like a little late addition, kind of mostly for like mouthfeel in, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And then we also, on different recipes, use quite a bit of aged hops. So we'll buy like 2012 or 2013 bagged hops from mm-hmm. um, hop suppliers that just haven't been able to sell them. Then we'll open them up into burlap sacks and just age them out for a bit. And to me, like that age hop character is like the most crucial part of like that Belgian goozy lambic flavor that you get from those beers. And so um, those kind of two styles of hopping are part of like a larger philosophy of ours of creating like a really diverse barrel cellar mm-hmm. for blending. Um, and then also I think one of the last things that makes us stand apart in our flavor pro- profile is using honey for bottle conditioning. All of our beers are bottle conditioned with orange blossom honey. And that kind of adds this like, like a little perception of sweet tartness mm-hmm. to a really dry beer still. And so one of the last things that makes our beer stand apart um, is the use of honey for bottle conditioning. Like all of our beers are bottle conditioned with orange blossom honey. And that to me gives like in a really dry beer, a sort of like perception of sweet tartness mm-hmm. and also like adds, I think a little bit to that mouthfeel too. So like, well, and, and it explains some of the floral characteristics. Yeah, I've really that floral it's, I really love when someone tries our beer and like they pick it out without knowing it's, it kind of surprises me because I don't, I don't really pick it out necessarily as honey in the finished beer, but there have been a few people like, Hey, is there honey in this? I'm like, yeah, actually there, there is. Yeah. Well, I mean, to me, it always comes across as like a floral note. Yeah. yeah it's, it's very like, floral. Yeah. Especially like with the orange blossom honey because mm-hmm. I just from the supplier we use, I prefer their orange blossom by itself over their, their wildflower. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like all those things, like I think the, the number one thing that the through line through all those is like mouthfeel. Mm-hmm. I like a really like kind of full bodied, almost like thick mm-hmm. beer. That's also as dry as possible, which to the point that you made earlier is really kind of tricky in comparison to like how a lot of sour beers have been yeah. perceived. Where, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, mean, I think the vast majority of craft brewers who are playing around and making like the occasional sour beer or like making a kettle sour or something like yeah. that. A lot of those beers come off very, very thin to me. Yeah, they do come off thin. And, um, well, and, and, and of course we, we also have to talk about the fact we are sitting in a room completely surrounded by oak barrels. How many, how many barrels are in here? Do you I think? think we have about 150 barrels of various sizes ranging from 15 gallons to 130 gallons. Right. And of course a good number of these barrels today are stained red. Because yeah. <laughs> you were, you were busy. Yes. We had a late light last night processing about a thousand pounds of raspberries and boysenberries. And it just looks like a bloody crime scene in here. Yeah, I was going to say, hopefully the cops don't have to come in here for some reason because yeah. they bring up the crime text. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, blood red barrels splattered everywhere. Yep. And I was going to say, but I mean, that's another thing that I see that you, that you guys have 
a lot of different fruit characters that you're playing around with as yeah. well. I like to keep it fairly simple. Like I think for the most part, we've only done like single fruits in a beer. Mm-hmm. Um, I like kind of like more traditional approach to like, I, I don't like gimmicky things. And mm-hmm. so like adding like a bunch of different adjuncts isn't really something we've done more than once or twice, but um, we do a lot of fruited beers partly because they're fun and partly because that's what people want to drink right now. Like I like also doing just like a clean, like unfruited blended Saison, but Mm -hmm. like they're just harder to sell than fruited stuff. Also like your your rustic. Yeah. Like rustic or like like in Principio or like Saison de Shushima, like those things. We do a lot of stuff like that, but um, those are the beers I'm most passionate about actually more than even the fruited stuff, but people like the fruited stuff more. Yeah. Well, because I mean the fruited stuff, catches people's eye i mean i think that's yeah. always the problem well and let's let's talk actually because i mean we have you very kindly broke open a bottle of one of your beers for us yes yeah so let's talk about this one we're drinking um lacan mm-hmm. it is a blended wild ale re-fermented with apricots and we used the apricots from a farm in san luis obispo area mm-hmm. called sea canyon fruit ranch and i believe they were blenheim variety apricots um oh those are yeah, those are relatively rare yeah, I know. Yeah. I love like learning more about like the variety, like specific varietals within a fruit. It's like, there are so many like nuanced flavors and differences between fruits. Yeah. There's a jam company up, uh, up that way that started years ago, hand making jam. And they started with Blenheim apricots really? because they had a tree in their backyard. Nice. Do you remember what the company's called? It's not um, like mama's preserves or something. No, like it's that. not. Uh, I could, I will find it for you later, but yeah. I just remember like that was what attracted me to it was it's like, Oh, Hey, look, this is a new, you know, this is a new old variety of something I've never had. Yeah. And I always complain that a lot of times apricots just feel like boring to me. They are a lot of varieties are, or a lot of the apricots out there are kind of bland. They're definitely yeah. not like they're kind of wet and fuzzy. Yeah. I always had this picture in my mind of apricots as being like really acidic and like mm-hmm. tart. And for the most part they aren't, they're kind of like, um, more middle ground acidity, kind of bland, really like, um, pithy and like mm-hmm. interesting. These apricots are amazing. So there's a guy, a friend of ours who has this kind of like side company sourcing fruit for mm-hmm. companies in general, but for a few breweries. And so that's, he, that's a handy contact for you to have. Yeah. It's awesome. We get fruit in a lot of different ways, but this is one of my favorite ways. Cause he goes to farmers because the farmers markets and it just like brings us like a crate full of fruit to sample and try. And so we worked with him for these. Um, and actually as we were processing them, he also brought a, another variety from a different farm, which was, um, Andy's orchard. And the variety was, um, I'm forgetting the variety right now, but anyway, they're completely different. And we had already gotten all these and decided we wanted to make as just really wanted to also do something with these apricots. And so that turned into our anniversary beer. Lacan and seconds, our anniversary mm-hmm. beer are actually the same beer. We took a portion of Lacan and aged it again on the second variety of apricots. And so, and you've done that a couple of times, I think where you have like two fruit agings. Yeah, we've done it and we're messing around with it. Some of the berries we did yesterday will, will turn into a second fruited double berry beer. Um, I don't think we really advertised it, but the first, release of cherry Berlinerish was mm-hmm. that way we did like some tart cherries and then just didn't really have the flavor we wanted so we did a second fruit re-fermentation on a little bit of sweet cherries and just got 
exactly the way we wanted it to taste. So um, that's something we're messing around with. People like really fruited stuff, and mm -hmm. it's kind of fun to have a beer that's like looks like fruit juice. Mm -hmm. um, and I, that's kind of a different way to do it over just like adding more fruit in the beginning. I feel like you don't get like as good of an extraction when you pull the beer off the fruit. If you have something that's been on like three or four pounds per gallon, you still see like a lot of the color and a lot mm -hmm. of the character in the fruit still. Um, and that's actually another kind of experiment we've done a few times is putting another beer on the spent fruits. Um, for us, like if we do that, it turns into like a keg only release because mm -hmm. I don't want, I don't want someone to say we're like cheaping people out out of like fruit character in their, in their <laughs> bottles. So, and you know, somebody would, and we know somebody would. Yeah. So, um, I know of a couple of breweries who do that and don't say that they're doing that. And to me, it seems kind of weird. Um, so we well, advertise it as like as as what it is. Well, and I, I think to me, if you're going to do something like that, I don't think there's like a moral or an ethical imperative to say, Hey, you have to say this. No, but I think actually to me, it's a selling point to show people, okay, here's a little bit more of the process. Here's, here's what this looks like here. You're going to get something different. Out yeah, of it. exactly. Yeah. And so to me, I think it's actually just good marketing. Yeah. People are interested in the process and yeah. then maybe they'll want to try well, every think, version of it. I think particularly people who are interested in, in pursuing sour ales yeah. are going to be really interested in that. You know, I mean, I've argued for a while if craft beer is the rock and roll of you know, the beer world, right? You know, yeah. you know the stodgy old corporate guys are Lawrence Welk and company, you know, craft brewers are rock and roll. Then this growing scene that we have of dedicated wild ale breweries is really sort of the punk rock movement. Inside yeah, of that. absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're rebels for sure. We do. <laughs> and that's like part of the fun of making sour beers. Everyone has their own way to do it. You know, every single sour producer, has some unique way and some process or a completely different way. And, um, it's fun to just kind of mess around and find it's, it's different than regular beer making in that sense, because you, you have a lot more like room to experiment and, well, and that sort of things. It's also a blend of winemaking. So there's a, you have to have a vintners touch in here. I mean, yeah. uh, we didn't, uh, the Lacan here is a blended ale. Yeah. So you have to, you have to get that sense in there as well. You're obviously dealing with a, metric ton of cooperage yeah and you're having to deal with ph and titratable acidity and mm -hmm. all these things that regular brewers don't even have to come close to worrying about yeah absolutely so it's a, uh, there's a little bit more of an art and a dance to this you know and, and yeah. also more room for things to go wrong now of course i think we would be remiss not to mention the fact that one of the unusual aspects for you guys being a brewery is you are a brewery without a brewery yep yeah we're we're um, a blendery. You yeah, know, you're, I think. you're a fermentorium. Yeah, we're a fermentorium, a blendery. There is no brewing that happens here, no boiling, no mashing. Um, we do all of that at McLeod down the street, and then we transfer the wort back here in totes and go straight into barrels and do all the primary with a mixed culture in oak barrels. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, looking in this room, oh, granted, this isn't a very large room. Um, we have precisely two stainless steel tanks in here, right? Yeah, yeah. just yeah. two packaging blending tanks. Yeah. So everything else in here is uh, wooden barrels and no brewing equipment. Now, I have to ask, you talk to so many people who are you know, uh, brewery owners or brewers, and there seems to almost be, for most of them, like one of their big joys was getting to design the brewing equipment yeah. and, <laughs> and operating the brewery. Yeah. 
is there any of that desire that you have? I mean, it's like there hasn't been like until recently. I kind of want to. I've I've actually because we send our recipes and we send our own ingredients to McLeod, but they do the actual brewing for us, mm-hmm. and we spend the day prepping barrels and getting everything ready for when the work gets back. So I actually haven't brewed a beer in like two years. And so there's been this like recently there's been this like niche or this like itch in me to like brew again and have more control over that part of the process. But I'd say that's a few years off at least mm. and probably in a different space. Well, I was going to say, I mean, right now you're wedged between a marijuana cooperative and an aerialist uh, yes. shop. <laughs> you don't exactly have room in here. No. Yeah. There's no room in the space. We would have to get a second space. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> that would be such the reverse. You know, most, most breweries, they open up a second space to have their sour project in. Yeah. You'd have to get the second space in order to open up your actual brewery. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> uh, but you know, I didn't, don't really have that itch for like creating the brew house myself. I'm not a very like, um, hands-on, like fix it, do it yourself kind of person. Um, that's part of the reason why we did this. It was like, I wanted to keep the process as simple as possible. And so mm-hmm. we don't, have any glycol we don't have any like walk-in cold storage there's no boilers or steam generators anything like that it's a very like kind of old school almost kind of like home brewery approach mm-hmm. to um making beer like in the simplest way possible and then also that's ironic because it's extremely complicated in certain ways yeah you've but, saved all your complication for further on down the further line. on down the line yeah but i did get joy out of like designing the space in so much as we did, like where to put the floor drains, mm-hmm. where to put the tanks, where to put the water heater and all the water sources. Um, it was fun doing that part of it. But so that we, we didn't use a, anyone to help us with that. We just kind of did it randomly by ourselves. Well, there you go. And so I know, uh, I know you do have, or you were running for at least a little while, your, your tasting room here. Yeah. You, know, you had the kegerator fired up, you had bottles being served. Yeah. And then I, I guess what, that was like special temporary license. Yeah. It was like a, we were pulling like five day event permits. Right. Um, we're in LA city, um, which a lot of people don't realize most of San Fernando Valley is still mm-hmm. LA city. And so we, we were pulling these special event permits through the city. And so we're a handful of other breweries mm-hmm. and the city and an 818. Eight, yeah. 818. Um, and also Frogtown. Yep. And India, I think, was doing it for a while before they got their full license. Um, and the city just shut it down for everybody um, and didn't really give real explanations. It had something to do with like the fire codes in the building, like not having sprinklers and whatnot, which is weird because like when we get our final permit done, we won't have to do any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, I mean, I th- more than likely, it was like somebody in the city waking up. I mean, it was exactly yeah. what Studio 54 used to do in New York all the time. They'd pull a cabaret license. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, you guys were effectively pulling a carnival license. Yeah, exactly. You know, which I think from the city's point of view is intended to be, oh, you're having a church fair. You want to sell some beer there. Therefore, yeah. we do this. And this is somebody <laughs> yeah. in the city probably woke up and went, wait, hold on. This isn't a temporary thing. What the hell are you guys doing? All yeah. right, stop. <laughs> you know? Yep, exactly. But we still try and, like, push the boundaries and do as much as we can. Um through ABC with our license, we can extend our premises four times a year. Mm-hmm. And we've kind of abused that to throw a couple events like our anniversary party we did recently. And we can, which was do, awesome by the way, which is fun. Yeah. And then the city's given us kind of like a small, okay to do private events. And so mm-hmm. we've done a couple cheese pairings here and, um, 
we'll probably do a little bit more of that thinking about maybe trying to do that for bottle releases a couple times a year. But, um, yeah, it's, they've, the city's made it difficult and we had kind of, we had made the decision not to do a tasting room right away pretty much for that reason. Cause we had seen mm-hmm. what McLeod went through with their like three year process to get open. If we would have done the tasting room and the brewery at the same time, they would have been connected and we wouldn't have been approved to start brewing mm-hmm. for who knows how long. And we really just wanted to get beer into barrels and start aging it. And so, um, we're going through the process now and hopefully like April of next year, we'll have a taste right back. Well, that's, that's how it works. Yeah. Big city, uh, big city, lots of rules. Cause a lot of people yep. are trying to cheat. Yeah, exactly. It's, it always makes me like sad to read like old blogs from like, I, I'm pretty sure Bunkish is one of them and Torrance where like they apply and they get their like tasting room license before their like mm-hmm. ABC license goes through like in a matter of weeks. Well, so it's a very, it's city by city. It's very different. Well, and, and of course, you know, Torrance, Torrance woke up early yeah. and said, Oh, Hey, you know, look, this is a good tax generator. Yeah. And Torrance, made that process very streamlined yeah so yeah and that's the advantage that a town like torrance can do because torrance is relatively tiny small yeah i will say though also on that note that i was assumed things like this especially in a city this big can never be changed and we've been actually pushing back on some of these things with the city and doing pretty well at it like recently we went in front of the city council about um water Mm mm-hmm use stuff like especially considered or in relation to um like water drainage and and sewer stuff and because we were being charged all the breweries in la are being charged the same fee as anheuser-busch mm-hmm. in los angeles and so we went in front of the city council and got that law changed and actually are gonna have reduced fees because of it and also i know like you know within the next couple of weeks franny who runs the la brewers guild has been pushing the la mayor's office really hard um and we're meeting with him within a few weeks specifically to talk about CUP and tasting room stuff. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to be, we're having like a little like um, brewery round table with him. And I think we're going to be part of that. So we're, we're trying to get laws changed and make things easier for breweries. And hopefully within like five or 10 years, it'll be better. Well, and, and to me, one of the amazing parts is you stop and think about it. So seven years ago or so, LA had six, seven breweries. Yeah. And I think as of today, it's in the LA County Brewers Guild, which you were talking about with Franny. I think the official count right now is either 67 or 68. Yeah, it's high. It might even be like 70. Yeah. Which, I mean, now that's nothing in comparison to, say, San Diego, which also made that same choice that Torrance did to, yeah. you know, pivot hard yeah. and actually do brewery igniters. And that's LA County, that yeah. number, which is really large. Yeah. I mean, and you, you stop me, like, LA County, the the whole of the county is, what, like 12 million? Yeah, it's an people? insane amount of people. So we have 70 breweries. We have a while to go. Yeah. But I'm kind of happy to at least say that in six, seven years, we've gotten from less than 10 to 70. That's yeah. pretty good. It's pretty good. And I'm hoping that the San Fernando Valley will blow up even more because right now, as far as tasting rooms go, there's um, McLeod. So, yep. And that's pretty much it, unless you count Burbank. Yeah, you got a couple in Burbank. You got San Fernando Brewing Company. Yeah. And yeah, you're pretty much it. Yeah. So hopefully 818 and Handbrewed and us at Celador. And hopefully a few others will come soon. Yeah, so the yeah it, it'll be nice. Uh, and I'm currently sitting at 54 of 67 visited. Nice. So <laughs> it's got a few good. more to go. 
I definitely have not seen that many. It's a lot of new ones. <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're busy brewing. Yeah. <laughs> so now we talked a, a little bit about some of your favorite flavors. Uh, we also, I think, talked about what we think makes your beer uniquely yours. Can you talk a little bit about the, the, the culture that you're using, like how that came about? Yeah. Um, so my kind of philosophy with fermentation in sour beers is a mixed culture primary fermentation. Um, this, I think for a long time, like the breweries in the United States that were making sour beers originally, like Lost Abbey and mm-hmm. um, Russian River, we're doing like a sack primary and then a mixed culture secondary mm-hmm. fermentation. Um, but the beer, when I was like, you know, drinking a lot of beers and doing research for how we wanted to do things, my favorite beers were mixed culture primary beers. And that to me is more traditional of like what Belgian Lambic and Goose is anyway, because spontaneous fermentations, you've got everything in there in the beginning. Yeah. Well, and, and so, they just rise up at different times due to the natural they rise life up cycles. Times. Yeah, exactly. Which is, I think probably what's happening to some extent in our barrels too, but, um, homebrewing, making beer, we were making sour beers, homebrewing a lot. And we were, um, kind of growing up mostly yeast from bottle dregs like mm-hmm. Chester King and side projects or, um, crooked stave, jolly pumpkin, some, some of my favorite sour beers mm-hmm. and just kind of keeping those cultures in small carboys and feeding them with wort every time we brew. And so just kind of, keeping it like a sourdough starter almost, um, almost like a Solera culture starter. Mm-hmm. And that's still what we do today. We have like probably five, five gallon carboys with uh, each one of them has different kind of mixed cultures. Mm-hmm. And we do, sometimes we add all of them into a beer when we're, when we're brewing, or sometimes we do different fermentations in different barrels, mm-hmm. um, which kind of goes back to that, like having different flavor profiles in our barrel cellar for blending. I try to, only use those for fermentations, but it's, it's kind of hard to build up enough to do a fermentation for like a 500 gallon batch. Mm -hmm. Um, and over the years they seem to be getting kind of sluggish. Um, a lot of them have like really slow fermentations from like five play to like 10, 20 down to like terminal. Mm -hmm. And I prefer if things go quick, like close to terminals as quickly as possible. And so we're also like often pitching fresh, Cezanne yeast or some fresh bread just to kind of make sure things are healthy. Um, but I'm a big fan of like old mixed cultures that have a lot of generations on them. Right. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, sort of multiple generations on your, on your yeast. To yeah, begin absolutely. With. Especially like bacteria. When you buy fresh bacteria from a lab, like you don't get any acidity on the first pitch mm-hmm. basically. Um, whereas like these older cultures, like, we can have a high alcohol beer at like 40 IBUs and you still get quite a bit of like acid buildup over a couple of weeks. Well, and so, I mean, have you had any of your cultures banked by anybody just to, just to not, hang on? No, I want, I want to. Um, I also, I was trying to, there's a new ish lab called bootleg biology. Yep. And I really like what they're doing out of Tennessee. And we were trying to, we do, um, we go up to a farm in Fresno every year and, mm-hmm. and pick our own fruit at Masamoto family farms. And we were going to very, very popular, uh, fruit uh, grower, yes, very popular, um, a lot of breweries world and in the beer world yep, they're, incredible they're fruit. incredible fruit. And so I was trying to work with him to like find some like Brett strains or like a sack strain off the skins of the fruit. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't happen this year, but I'm hoping next year we can do that and just kind of have like, like a house Brett culture that we'll use for Masamoto Brett strain. That'd be pretty awesome. Yeah, I know. That would be super cool. 
but um, I have not had anything banked so far. I'd like to, I'm, I'm trying to learn more about that kind of stuff myself and mm-hmm. um, start keeping slants and like growing things up. So let me ask, we're here is basically Van Nuys adjacent, right? We are in the middle of the San Fernando Valley, yep. which I normally try and equate to people is a giant griddle pan. Yeah. <laughs> particularly during the summer. It's hot. Yeah, it gets hot. I mean, there's no wind, there's no humidity. And boy, the sun just hits the floor like nobody's business. Yeah, we had a lot of one ten days this summer. So, what do you do to sort of? I mean, like you, you look at like Cantillon, for instance, and they're very insistent that they only brew during this one the specific winter, period yeah. of time because otherwise the heat in Belgium is too much during the summer, and the heat in Belgium during the summer is nothing like the heat here. So, what do you do? Yeah, um, I kind of like. I think I'm still trying to figure out exactly what we want to do, but I'll tell you what we've done so far. Um, part of my philosophy, I, like temperature to me with these kind of beers, I don't think it's matters as much as with like a, a clean beer. Mm-hmm. So I try and keep our, our cellar where our fermentations are happening in ambient conditions between like 68 and 76 ish. Um, we do have like a full AC unit here in the warehouse, but it's not very efficient. It was meant for the offices in the front, and we just kind of like shut off all the valves to the offices and and force it into the into the main warehouse. And so we can keep it definitely under eighty, like without too much mm-hmm. too much hard work. Um, I know like saisons are, are saison strains typically like higher elevated levels anyway. Um, but with temperature here, we're kind of like we're balancing the temperature of primary fermentations of secondary long aging fermentations of bottle conditioning. Um, so we kind of have to find like a middle ground, like, you know, I'd like our, our aging vessels to be at cooler temperatures, but I'd like our primary fermentation vessels to be at slightly elevated temperatures. And if it gets too cold in here, then our bottle conditioning is really sluggish or we have problems. Um, so I find that like that, like 68 to 75 range is, is kind of like a Goldilocks zone, as you can say. And so, um, we try and keep the door shut in the summers in the back mm-hmm. and turn on the AC as much as po- as little as possible. Um, but it's, it's, a uh, it's manual, you know, the AC unit doesn't, um, you can't just like set it to 75 in here and it does its, its own thing. It's, it's, it doesn't, it's not a very good unit like that. And so it's, it's, it takes a lot of like manual paying attention to. And if we're gone for like three days and it just does whatever it does. Um, I, I sense a potential future upgrade. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Uh, but even bigger than temperature is like humidity, trying to keep the humidity controlled in here for the wood. Um, wood humidity. Yeah. <laughs> so like it's have, a dry heat. It's a dry heat. Yeah. So we have this swamp cooler we use. Um, we actually bought it because we lost power here two summers ago and um, we're running on generators for like three months. And so we use that to kind of try and keep it cool in here during the summer that happened um, when we had first just started brewing. So we use that to keep the humidity at like 70 ish percent if we can, mm-hmm. which is a struggle here in LA. Um, and that, that'll be an upgrade hopefully soon to, to a real humidity control thing. But um, like in the, over the aging process, if the humidity is really low, we see a lot more leakage in barrels and, you see a lot of evaporation in the barrels too. And so I pay more attention to humidity than temperature. Yeah. And I'm noticing you've got stainless steel nails in all your barrels for the sampling. So yep. 
you can you can keep an eye on everything as well. I would yeah. imagine that would also be a good indicator of whether or not you're keeping enough swelling. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You can tell just like looking at a barrel when it's when it's starting to like lose some of its water in the wood. It looks it looks sad. Like a nice don't fresh let your, plump barrel is be- is beautiful. Don't let your barrels get sad. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, I did want to talk two other things. Uh, yeah. Now a lot of sour, a lot of sour based breweries. I'm noticing that one of their big marketing strategies, one of their big sort of, you know, money strategies, is having clubs. Yeah. And you guys are no different. You have uh, you have your your membership club here as well. Yeah, we do. Uh, what's it called? How much does it cost? Da, 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 da. Um, we do. We have a club called the Single Barrel Syndicates, and um, we had. We have a club called the Single Barrel Syndicate. We had, I had really not wanted not to do a club in the beginning. I felt like they were kind of gimmicky and mm-hmm. starting to get a little too many of them out in the world. And in the beginning, just got to a place financially because we just, it's just basically our money and some small investors that helped us get started. We got to a place where we had to. So we started this club and I'm really glad that we did. It's been like one of the best things we could have done for ourselves. Um, well, and, and, and I mean, I think. I mean, you guys offer multiple levels. Yeah, exactly. None, none so, of them are unreasonable in terms of overall cost. I mean, there are some, yeah. some, of, those, uh, some of those brewery clubs that are like, oh, man. Yeah, they're intense. I know like most of them are around $300. And I think Modern Times' this club is even more, maybe like 400 They get really expensive. And so I, I like doing things different, like just for the sake of being different to a certain extent. And so I didn't want to do the kind of like typical like $300, 10 bottles of beer over the year club thing. And so we decided to do a tiered club mm-hmm. thing where um, you can choose tiers one through four and you basically get one, two, three, or four bottles per release. And we do seven releases throughout the year, five, three, 75 milliliter bottles and two, seven, 50 milliliter bottles. And then like we throw a party and you get like a shirt and some glassware and um, access to all of our other beers online before we put them up or distribute them to well, the public. I- and I thought the the party that you guys had uh, earlier this year was really yeah. nice. You had cheese pairing set up. Yeah, we threw a classy party. We had a jazz band playing. I know. Um, we had grilled tacos, which was like one of the most sought yep. after awesome food trucks in LA. Um, West Villa is amazing. Um, so yeah, we really went all out on on that club party. And um, well, and I also thought it was great because I mean you had. All of these different stations. Yeah. I mean, what was it? It was like five or six stations? Four or five beer stations. We had like, I think we had four beer stations and then like a different like bottle right. pickup buying station. And then and then the cheese station and whatnot. But each of those stations had radically different beers to it. So it was kind of fun. They were all your beers. And it was just kind of fun to wander between and go, yeah. oh, hey, look at that. Yeah, we tried to mix them up so that there'd be like a, a really kind of awesome beer that people want to try and then something kind of more simple. Mm-hmm. And so that we, we really didn't want to have like lines or like issues with people being able to try the beers. We did like all pre bought pours. These mm-hmm. came up to the line with a ticket and handed it over and you got a beer. Um, it was cool. It worked out really well. It was a really fun party. Yeah. Well, and, and that leads me to one of the ones I wanted to talk about because I thought it was like one of the more interesting takes on a beer that, that I can recall seeing. And that was the, the Psalm Psalm spike. Yeah. yeah Psalm spike. This was, this is an interesting one. So yeah. tell, uh, tell the crew about the, the Psalm spike. So we have this red base we kind of do. Um, we did a, a couple of releases of it throughout the year. The first one was Palimpsest, which was unfruited. And then we did 
um, every other release had a different anagram of the name Palimpsest because we ran into a copyright issue and couldn't use that name anymore. <laughs> and so we did um, Sam Tipples, Stamp Piles. Um, Tassel Pimp. Tassel Pimp. We're bottling one soon that's going to be Ms. P-Split. And this one that you're asking about was Psalm Spite. Um, it was the red base aged in a sherry puncheon, so a 500 liter sherry barrel. Um, it was fermented in a red wine puncheon before that. So it had red wine and then for a few months, and then I think like six or seven months in the sherry puncheon with an insane amount of black raspberries. Yeah. Um, and it was just, it's a viscous beer. It has legs and a glass like wine. It just clings and, to the glass. And no carbonation. And no carbonation. So we released it um, flat. I think nowadays there's a really, really slight level of carbonation to it, but we we bottled it essentially flat. And it's, it's dry, but it's just thick and viscous and... Um, well, it definitely carries Almost like fruit wine. Well, I was gonna say, I mean, it carries uh, obviously a massive amount of fruit. Yeah, and the red wine and sort of sherry characteristics, along with that viscousness, kind of give it almost like a port-like feel. Yeah, exactly. It's it's like a dessert wine. Yeah. Um, and so did, now, did you guys release it flat because you wanted to preserve that sort of thing, or was there like worry that if you had CO two in it, it would like bump the acidity to a point where it would rob? Yeah, from we, yeah. We felt like. Um, like some of the the viscous body character of it would be lost with carbonation, um, and also, I mean, th- that's one of the reasons. One of the, a smaller reason would be a beer like that is hard to bottle condition. Mm-hmm. Um, like I've noticed stuff with lots of fruit in it, or with like it's pretty sour too. So like really low pH levels is really difficult to carbonate, and so um, that was a factor that played into it, um, and also because it's just fun to push the boundaries of beer sometimes. Well, it, it was definitely one of those things that caught my eye on it. it was yeah. like, wait, hold on. What? And then, and then, yeah, when it's sitting in those, in those glasses, by the way, the, those glasses that you guys had for the, for the party. Oh yeah. I love that little glass. Yeah. I, I use that like, thing all the time. Uh, snifter, like, um, I think brandy, it might be brandy. Snifter, yeah. Exactly. It just like a, it almost looks like a wine glass except for flat bottomed and, stem. and, yeah. and very, very small and absolutely rock and roll for tasting. Nice. Yeah. They're cool. Um, yeah, so we did that, and actually, I think we're going to do something similar, but like white wine mm-hmm. influence. So we get, we were able to get a bunch of Roussan wine grapes mm-hmm. this summer, and we did we had this beer that aged like fifteen months in in white wine barrels, and already it tasted like white wine. And so we added this a bunch of Roussan. It's like basically half grape juice, half beer, um, like a wine hybrid. And after it finished fermenting, it tasted like a beautiful like white wine. So I think we're going to also bottle that still and probably in like wine bottles this time instead of um, the champagne bottles. Cool. Sounds, uh, that sounds pretty nifty. All right. So before we leave, any other brewing thoughts that you want to share with people? Oh, um, I'm really happy. You said not to mention balance earlier, but I'm really happy with the balance of our beers and also just like kind of the newer trend in sour beer making of, less acidity and kind of more, um, funk and, Mm -hmm. and complexity and balance. And so, um, I, I hope that things keep going that way for sour beer. It's, I almost, I always like to relate it to, um, IBUs and IPAs. So like for a while it was all about like how many IBUs you had in it. And for the last couple of years, 
when was the last time you heard someone say even the word IBU? No one, no one cares about IBUs in their in their IPAs anymore. No, it's, no, all it's all about, about the hop flavor. It's all about, about the hop flavor, the the late hop additions, the dry hopping, and so um, I hope that this trend continues. Some of my favorite producers are like Beechwood Blendery. Mm-hmm. It's like really low, really low levels of acid in their beers and really cool, complex, yeah. very yeah. Belgian-like flavors. Well, and I, and I totally agree. I think we've, I mean, we went through the IBU wars with IPA, and I think we've been through the uh, – we're still in the midst of the, the acid wars yeah. with sour and funky beers. Yeah. And I think hopefully, yeah, I think we're, we're pulling back from that brink. You know, everybody's – Everybody's taking their foot a little bit off the gas. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Sour's kind of had their moment, and I hope that Saison's are next. You kind of see that coming a little bit. There's some really, really good – Saison is, I, I I know, kind of a controversial word to say in itself. But what I mean by that is complex, barrel-aged, mixed mm-hmm. fermentation beers um, that are unfruited for the most part. Mm-hmm. I hope beers like that catch and, and get more popular. Yeah, we'll appreciate okay. that more. Yeah, and and I have this debate a lot with people because, of course, I'm a big saison guy. Yeah, and my problem is, I think saison to me is a mixed culture beer, but mm-hmm. it's one of those ones where it's sack dominant with the Brett in the background. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And what I see right now with so many of the mixed culture saisons that are being done is that they are the mixed culture dominant, where the Brett is actually yeah, sort true. of overtaking everything. And it's yeah. like so I get Brett, but I'm not getting my saison character there, and it's like. Yeah, yeah, I'm hoping people find that balance because think of like uh, Saison DuPont, right? You know, the regular DuPont, I mean, that's sack driven. And then you've got this this wonderful earth note of Britannomyces yeah. and hops behind behind it that yeah. actually structures the rest of the beer. Yeah, definitely. I, I would not be surprised if that was a mixed culture beer. I don't know. Oh, how it is. It, uh, from what I understand, two, uh, two strains of Saccharomyces, one of uh, Britannomyces, yeah. and I think it's actually even Brett Brooks. Yeah. I think uh, we're pretty much on the same page. Um, I, it's some people when they hear saison think of like like stone saison like something yeah. that's like one sack strain yeah. that's super peppery and and phenolic and um, to me like like what you're saying like a little bit of that like bread aging turns a lot of those like peppery phenols into like really cool like fruity esters yep. and that's what I what I like in a saison yeah I'm just hoping people don't get too too out there and lose yeah the we need more words you know we need I. So, like, when we name our beers, it's fairly arbitrary because mm-hmm. they're all made of the same process. But based on how they taste, like, like more cleaner, try and call them Saison. Mm-hmm. And then I like using Farm Hill Sale a little bit. That's, that's a little mm-hmm. more vague. And then if it gets a little more Brett Funk or a little more acidic, I like Wild Hill a lot. Well, um, and I think there's a big problem there. We don't have... We have a lexicon that, that yeah. can handle it. Yeah, exactly. We don't have the yeah we don't have the the, the dictionary yet yeah. to really help describe sour ales more than just oh that's a sour ale exactly. What, what do you yeah. mean by that? Yeah. You know? I I think we've only actually put sour beer on one of our labels <laughs> because I I just don't like the phrase that much for for at least the beers that we're making. All right. All right. Last question. Yeah. So obviously we're all beer obsessed because we're sitting here we're talking on a podcast about beer we're yeah. sitting in the middle of a bunch of barrels filled with beer. But we also all have other obsessions. So what is something other than beer that you are obsessed with? Um, I'm obsessed with um, books and reading and also um, like really good movies and TV shows. But I would say like my, my number one obsession if I had to choose is, is books. Um, and I try and like bleed that into our beers a little bit with like our names. I like to, I like to choose names where like if you Google it, 
you'll learn something potentially that you didn't know before. And so um, I don't do as much reading these nowadays as I did pre-brewery, but um, I love reading philosophy and science and classic literature and stuff like that. So what is one book that would blow everybody's mind? Ooh, one book to rule them all. Um, I love, man, that's a really tough decision. Um, I think I'm going to answer this in the nonfiction realm and say, go read Steven Pinker's better angels of our nature or listen to audiobook because audiobooks are cool too. Um, it's just like kind of history of violence and, mm-hmm. and it's a very optimistic book and very, um, lots of knowledge and he's one of the smartest guys alive. So check out Steven Pinker. Steven Pinker. There we go. Yeah. If man is, if man is an angel, he is a killer angel. Yeah. As the quote goes. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, Hey, thank you. Thank you. All right. And Hey, by the way, the next time that you're in the LA general area, the tasting room's not open yet unless there's a special event going on, but make sure that you stop by some of your better uh, beer retailers. Uh, are you guys on tap anywhere or you just keep the kegs in house? Uh, we, we're on tap, but it's, it's kind of sporadic. It's most of our kegs go out for special events. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say if you want to try us on tap, Probably your best option is we're pouring in Glendale. Nope. He's kind of like the one guy that we always send beer to because we like him. Um, but yeah, most most like nice bottle shops. If if a bottle shop has a good reputation in LA, we try and send it to them. And also we sell beer online, and you can pick it up here. You just have to arrange the, the time with us. There you go. So uh, SoladorAles.com, right? Yep. SoladorAles.com, and like I said, we are in the shadow of. Brewing giants and giant airports, yeah. <laughs> but there's some wonderful beer in some very funky barrels all around us right here, right now. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Chase. Thank you, Sarah. Man, you know, there's there's a lot of homebrew attitude still in the way that he does things, isn't there? Yeah, and that to me is one of the more interesting things about him is that it really is sort of like a homebrewer gone out of control. And to me, what's really interesting is that out of just a few sort of simple words, he's generating like all of these different flavors and really sort of running around making a lot of different uh, different beers from interesting combinations of ingredients. I never would have thought to reuse fruit, for instance, like he's using. Mm-hmm. And so it's just kind of nifty and interesting to me. But yeah, it, it, he is kind of a homebrewer gone mad. Yeah, you know what? And the other thing is that he's part of an interesting trend that we're starting to see more of, uh, like the Rare Barrel or uh, my friends at Ailsong Brewing and Blending here in Eugene, of breweries that maybe like have other people brew for them or brew off premises and then come back and they'll, uh, they'll ferment the beer and blend it and age it and add things to it to really make it different. And, uh, you know, it, it just shows that in some beer styles, the brewing of the beer is only part of the game, huh? Exactly. And uh, I think most of the guys who are doing this uh, here in LA, we have a few others like Concrete Jungle and Gunwale Ales down in Orange County. Most of the other ones that are doing this sort of technique, you know, they're, they're not just going to a brewery and saying, here's a recipe sheet and go brew for us. They're there involved with the brew day. So it's it's not quite like, hey, you know, look, we're we're just having somebody make work for us. They're having somebody make work for them under their direction. So they are still paying attention to the production. But yeah, for a lot of these guys, the magic is all happening in the brewery itself. Right, right. 
Okay, we are going to get out of the brewery here now and uh, wrap up this show so we can all get on with the rest of our day. But before that, we're going to answer some questions. We're going to toss out a quick tip, and Drew is going to talk about something other than beer. So we'll be right back after these messages. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. In ancient times, there were men who were wise. They were scholars, they were gurus. You could come to them with your questions and get answers to life, the universe, and everything. And then there's us. We are not those men. But we'll still take your questions. <laughs> That's right. We'll give it our best try. So speaking of which, uh, Denny, you th I think you got the first one, buddy. Okay, this question comes in from Takumi Sato via email. And Takumi says, Hi guys, thank you for a great podcast. Well, thanks for saying that, Takumi. I enjoy tuning in on my commute to work. The recent Hop-centric episode raised a couple of questions for me. Number one, I wondered if there is a connection between the onion-garlic aroma from some hops and the conversation with Brian from YCH about hop contracts. Do homebrewers get lower-quality hops if breweries are flying out to the hop fields and getting first choice? On a special brewery tour for homebrewers in my area, the head brewer essentially indicated that homebrewers are getting what is left after the contracts are filled. I recently brewed a Northeast IPA that was heavily dry hopped during primary fermentation, which produced a heavy onion-garlic aroma, making me think that it might be due to poor quality, picked too late as you guys indicated on the show. Fortunately, the aroma or flavor of onion-garlic did not carry over into the finished beer. And Takumi's second question is, when I kegged the same beer... I noticed a burning sensation on my tongue and throat upon tasting a sample. The burning was more like what I imagined an acid burn to feel like, oh God, that sounds bad, rather than a spicy hot burn. After force carbonating and putting the keg on tap, I still noticed the same burning, making it hard to have more than one small pour in a sitting. The burn has faded over the last couple weeks. The recipe did call for close to one and a half pounds of hops per five gallons between the end of the boil, whirlpool, and two dry hop additions during primary. Mostly Citra, Mosaic, and Galaxy, with a touch of Apollo. Is it present that hop compounds in excessive concentration can cause the burn? I haven't noticed this with other homebrewed or commercial beers. Kanpai, which... 
means something that I have no idea of. Okay, Takumi, let's head back to question number one here. Um, yes, commercial brewers do fly into Yakima or other places hops are grown and choose hops. Uh, I'm only familiar with that process in relation to the way things happen at YCH, so that's the context I'm going to be answering your question within. Remember that besides the brewers coming in here to pick hops, so do the wholesalers. Uh, the brewers aren't the only ones there selecting lots, and the wholesalers get to select from the same lots that the brewers do. Uh, the their money is the same color, so they get the uh, the same choices of hops that the commercial breweries do. So, in effect, no, at least in the context of YCH, home brewers are not getting the leftovers, so to speak. Uh, the hops that uh, that go to home brewers come from the same lots that the commercial breweries are choosing from. So. You know, I, I don't know where the hops you get are coming from, but again, in the context of YCH, there there is no necessarily leftovers for homebrewers. Now, question number two. Let me first just say one and a half pounds of hops in five gallons. <laughs> Holy crap. Uh, yeah. Uh, that has got to uh, do something. Let's remember that hops are loaded with tannins, and tannins are harsh. Um, if you've ever tasted the wort right out of your kettle, it is like totally disgusting crap. Uh, the hops are so present. It is so bitter. There are so many tannins, or maybe I should say so much tannin, uh, that has been drawn out of them. It is extremely harsh. And I have experienced that burning sensation when I have had the misfortune to taste uh, bitter wort right out of the kettle. So I tend to think that that is probably what's causing your problem. The other thing that is a possibility is if somehow your pH got driven really low, that could do it also. I don't know what your water is like. I don't know what you're doing with it. So I don't know about that. But I would have to say that a pound and a half of hops in five gallons could very easily give you that kind of effect. The good news is that it's probably going to mellow as that beer ages some. What do you think there, buddy? One and a half pounds in five gallons is the sort of excessive exuberance that I expect of homebrewers. <laughs> Yeah, but and I, excessive. I, I would agree. It's uh, to me, it sounds more like it's a tannin thing. If it, if we're an acid thing, I would have actually expected that it would have been accentuated with the carbonation, right? So carbon right. carbonation hitting when CO two dissolves into an aqueous solution, it forms carbonic acid. So and carbonic acid tastes acidic. So I would have expected if it was an acid thing for it to actually feel. You know, more dramatic after the carbonation than, than apparently it does. Maybe the carbonation is actually helping. So, which might be if it's actually in, in the case of a tannin here. So, yeah, I think it's probably like a hop tannin type, uh, type of issue. Um, yeah, Takumi actually says that it's faded over the last couple of weeks, and I think it'll 
continue to fade and the beer will become more drinkable. Right. Well, but then there's right. always the question of, okay, so the beer might become more drinkable because the hop tans are fading, but what about the rest of the hop compounds, all those hop flavors? So it may get more drinkable, but he may still be missing out on what he was ideally wanting, which was that, you know, sort of big hop hit. If if he put a pound and a half of hops in there, it's still going to have a big hop hit. But not the same, man. <laughs> yeah. You know what? And uh, again, going back to YCH, this would be a perfect time to use the cryo hops because one of the real advantages of the cryo hops is that you get all the lupulin without all the vegetal matter. And that would really, really cut down on those tannins. Yep. And for the record, compi means cheers. Oh, thank you. Now I can say cheers in yet another language. Ta-da. Okay, your turn. All right, question number two comes from uh, Ryan Vanden Heuvel. says, uh, Drew, I am familiar with your keg purge process and then racking through the liquid out port. How do you prevent overfilling the keg, filling up to and past the gas dip tube when the keg lid is closed and you cannot see it? Thanks for all you do. There are two answers to this, Ryan. One is what I do. The second is what I can tell you that you can do. So what I actually do is I feel where the, the liquid level is on the keg. So I just kind of bump the keg with my, my leg and can feel where the liquid level's at, and I just keep an eye on it. And I tend to slow down the transfer as I get closer. Uh, so yeah, th- that's mostly what I do. Now, the proper and right- righteous way that you would do it, if you wanted to be a, a real Boy Scout, is go out there and grab yourself your scale that you use for weighing your grain, you know, this is one of your big heavy scales, right? Not, not your little hop scale, but you know, the thing that can weigh say a hundred plus pounds and you, maybe like your bathroom scale. Exactly. Put your keg on that and then watch. And then remember a pint is roughly a pound the world round. And so do your calculations and figure out what that is. And I think it comes out to like 40 some odd pounds, right? And it's not like 8.15 pounds per gallon. No, per pint. A pint, or sorry, no, you're right. 8.15 pounds per gallon because a a gallon is five pints. So, uh, yeah, and so you're basically looking for it to get to somewhere around 40, 41 pounds, and that would be five gallons. Right. And once you know that you've got five gallons in there, you're done. So that's the the proper way of doing it, but I will tell you, over the years, I've just pretty much always gone and felt where the keg level is. Yeah, right. And the other thing, too, is if uh, if you're racking cold beer into a warm keg, you can watch the condensation level on it, too, and, yeah. uh, and see what's going and, on. And in that, in that case, you can also like take your star sand bottle, you know, your spray bottle, spray the side of the keg, and it, and it makes for a very dramatic line. Yep. So you do yep. that, too. Feel where the temperature okay. uh, feel where the temperature gradient is, et cetera. But yeah, the right uh, the righteous and properly scientific method would be to actually weigh the keg empty and then watch the weight as it goes up in the transfer. Cool. Yep. Okay. Next question is coming in from Sean Phipps via email. Sean has a question that I have to admit that I see probably at least once a month as I troll around through the forums out there. Sean says, Hey guys, a quick question for you. I recently moved and as we were unpacking boxes, I discovered a couple cans of old Mr. Beer branded LME. They say they expired in 2015. I won't bother asking about potential off flavors and stuff. They're already questionable when new and fresh. And I'm going to brew with it either way. Well, he's got his mind made up. 
So my question is, if you had to brew something with old, expired, pale, and American lager LME, what would you make? What would you try to do to make it palatable? Or fun and ridiculous? Something better than just throwing them in the trash? I have a few ideas, but I'm curious what you guys would do. Thanks, fellas. Keep up the great work. Well, hey, thanks, Sean. Okay, first and most obvious, use them to make yeast starters, man. Uh... You don't need to use a lot of it and uh, so that won't, it won't have a great flavor impact on your beer. And uh, it'll work great for yeast starters. Other than that, I would pick a style of beer to make that is benefited by oxidation. Something like an old ale or a barley wine or something like that. Um and especially if you were to say make an American barley wine, then you could throw a, a whole boatload of hops in there to, uh, to kind of like help cover up any off flavors and the oxidated extract might actually contribute to the flavor. So those are my suggestions. I guess you get the fun and ridiculous side. Well, I was going to say my, um, my first thought is, yeah, this is a cover up. This has to be a cover up. So take your take your LME, make a stout, make something with a lot of character grains, make a barley wine where you're using this to actually sort of bump up the gravity, make something with a ton of hops, put oak in it, I don't know, uh, put chili peppers or something. You know, if the extract has a off flavor, you need to cover it up. So that would be my suggestion. Find a cover up. Yeah. And Sean, uh, write back and let us know what your ideas are and what you eventually end up doing with it, because uh, we're real curious to see how this goes. And our last question of the day comes from Aaron Ouellette from Facebook. He says, hey, Drew, if you don't mind, I have a Saison water profile question. I'm wondering if you've experimented with different water profile targets for Saisons. I'm going to be brewing a Pils Vienna Zatz Saison, about 1060 target with the Belle Saison yeast, and I'm looking for a dry but softer mouthfeel. I'm wondering what you would target for that. So my answer, Aaron, is I tend not to worry too much about water for Saisons, uh, mostly because the water I have here in LA, it sort of comes close to what Walloonian water is like, where it's mineral intense and kind of hard, but uh, very good for anything uh, amberish and above, right? So if you're wanting to push to a softer mouthfeel, though, I would I would look at say uh, go and open up brewing water right because Denny and I are big fans of brewing water. No brewing water does not give us money. <laughs> go go no, but maybe we should. Talk. Yeah, man, maybe we should no. But go and look at uh, brewing water, and I would say go for a golden balanced water profile, so that you, that will give you a little bit of softer thing, uh, and you're not going to have a lot of color from uh, pills in Vienna. So you you kind of want to go golden balanced. And really, to me, that mostly says that if you want softer, you're wanting to go more uh, carbonate, or sorry, not more carbonate, more chloride, and that would help drive off or drive up some of those malt flavors that you that you probably want for a softer thing. Now, if you if by softer you mean, hey, I want something that is like literally water soft, then for that I would actually start with RO water, and I would probably make a almost Pilsen esque water. You know, which is basically almost no minerals, just enough calcium to do uh, enzyme magic. But, yeah, but right. Exactly. That's me. I tend not to worry too much about it. 
because uh, like I said, I've, I've been blessed with water that's fairly, fairly good for Cezanne. So there you go. Easy answer. Yeah. No kidding, man. All right. Denny, tip the people. Yes. Tip the good listeners. <laughs> We're going to start today what I'm calling my Back to the Basics series. A lot of times when you cruise around all the different beer discussion forums out there, you'll see people saying, okay, post your tips uh, for new brewers, stuff like that. Well, a lot of times those tips don't get disseminated as much as they should. And, uh, you know, since it only comes around once in a while, you might have missed out on some of these. So we're going to cover two quick and easy tips this time. And uh, in the future, we'll be doing more of the back to the basics quick tips. First one is I continually see questions from somebody going, I've had this mold around for this amount of time. You know, maybe it's been a month. Maybe it's been three months. Maybe it's been two years. Is it still good to use? Well, people, there's a really easy way to tell, and that's just to put a few kernels in your mouth and crunch down on them. And if they crunch, if you practically break your teeth on them, if there's no kind of stale taste to it, no matter what the age of that malt is, it's still good to use. Conversely, if when you put that malt in your mouth and you uh, bring your teeth together it kind of smooshes out and squishes. That's not a good sign. That malt has gone slack and you don't want to be using it. You'll notice kind of an oxidized stale taste to it also. So there you go. If it hurts to eat your malt, it's still good. Next tip is, you know, when you're emptying a carboy that you've uh, maybe been cleaning or something and it's full of water You just kind of, it glugs out and takes forever to empty that carboy. Stick a racking cane in it uh, so that the end of the racking cane goes up into the little bit of airspace in the bottom of the carboy. And that provides a way to get air in there to let all that water kind of come out in one big whoosh. And makes your carboy emptying quick and easy. And, you know, who wants to hold a carboy full of water longer than you have to? Sounds good to me. You know, it also <laughs> sounds like the party trick I used to use in college for making punch. Oh, no. <laughs> so if you have some of your own uh, quick tips, uh, especially some for this Back to Basics series, write in and let us know. You can send them to podcast at experimentalbrew.com or give us a call at 626-765-1AL and tell us your quick tips. Okay, and then, of course, it's now time for the last thing that we do. It's something other than beer, because I love something other than beer. And this week, it's another podcast out there. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but I live in Los Angeles, and Los Angeles has had a number of interesting crime stories over the years. But probably none of them has captured the public's imagination nearly as much as the now 70-year-old unsolved murder of the Black Dahlia. I actually drive by the site where the Black Dahlia's body was discovered well, probably a couple times a month. So her case is always uh, fresh in my mind, uh, the tragic short life of Betty Short. And at one point in time, I was actually considering making a podcast all about Hollywood and crime. Well, it turns out the fine folks at the Wondery Network have already made a podcast called Hollywood and Crime. They launched it last year, and it actually launches the first season with a whole set of stories about all these different murder cases that happen in between 1943 and about 1948 in L.A., of women who were beaten and brutally murdered 
in what the press at the time had actually referred to as the werewolf killings. And what some people nowadays speculate are actually the work of an early serial killer. So this whole series is actually, it's very well produced, it's well researched, and they actually do audio recreations of the different people who were involved in these stories actually talking as if though like you're actually hearing an interrogation session or hearing the report from the autopsy doctor, etc. And they're on season two and they're covering up through the later periods of the time of the Dahlia case in terms of, you know, the later investigations, even a decade after. So it's actually really, really fascinating to me, particularly since I like old Hollywood stuff and I like old crime stories. So if you have any sort of interest in that sort of thing, go and look up Hollywood and crime from Wondering. We'll include a link for it in the show notes. But like I said, I think it's a really well-produced and sort of fascinating tale. Cool, man. I got something else to listen to when I drive into town now. There you go. All right. Let's do this. Well, I guess you've uh, wasted another couple hours, uh, but thanks for listening to the Experimental Brewing Podcast. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the uh, homebrewing subreddit, as well as the Slack homebrewing channel. I'm on a bunch of different beer discussion forums out there, uh, mostly the AHA forum. Come by and say hi. And uh, if you want to ask us a question or suggest topics or recipes or experiments or even just rant and rave, which we understand, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com, or you can get a hold of each one of us individually. I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can always leave us a voicemail at 626 765 Don't forget your Brew Year's resolutions. (laughs) That's right. Send in those Brew Year's resolutions. And until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.